This is America's Webradio.com, the best in chat radio designed just for you. Uh, last night, I congratulated Donald Trump and offered to work with him on behalf of our country. I hope that he will be a successful president for all Americans. This is not the outcome we wanted or we worked so hard for. And I'm sorry that we did not win this election for the values we share and the vision we hold for our country. To talk to President-elect Trump last night, uh, about 3.30 in the morning, I think it was, to congratulate him on winning the election. And I had a chance to invite him to come to the White House tomorrow uh, to talk about making sure that there is a successful transition between our presidencies. And there you have it, folks. Drop dead shock. Welcome to the Doctor's Lounge. This is a special post-election edition of the Doctor's Lounge. I'm your host, Dr. Mike Karuchek. Thanks very much for joining us uh, for some very, very interesting, almost, dare we say, sort of once-in-a-lifetime sort of uh, conversations to have about something that was totally shocking, totally unexpected. Uh, Let's go ahead and play the last little piece of the intro clips. Here's Donald Trump making a little piece, not the whole thing, but a little piece of his speech last night. Sorry to keep you waiting. Complicated business. Complicated. Thank you very much. I've just received a call from Secretary Clinton. It's the only time you'll hear them cheer for Clinton at a Trump speech. She congratulated us, it's about us, on our victory. And I congratulated her and her family on a very, very hard-fought campaign. I mean, she, she fought very hard. And there you have it, the last of the, of the summaries of exactly what happened last night. Uh, once again, a drop-dead shock. Nobody believed this was going to happen. And uh, I can't say that, that, that I even believed it was going to happen. I do have evidence, though, um, of going on record with my son on a text message telling him last night before the polls closed that Donald Trump was going to win. However, uh, if I'm going to be totally honest with you, I also have to tell you that I had to throw out most of my show prep uh, for today because I really did, as I looked back on my material, I was prepping for a show assuming – that Hillary Clinton would win. So, you know, inside my heart and soul, I was split. Um, I think, you know, I obviously uh, was rooting for Donald Trump, not because I'm Republican or because it's conservative or anything like that. Again, we are a we are a 501c3 nonpartisan thing. Uh, but I think it's fair to say that Hillary Clinton and Barack Obama are probably, you know, two of the darkest figures in American healthcare history. And so, uh, you know, denying them a chance to advance Obamacare and um, expand the role of government even farther uh, in the doctor-patient relationship, I think it's fair game for us to oppose that uh, and, and, uh, and not have any issues. Uh, but it was an interesting night for me personally. I won't make the story too long. But uh, I, I had a late day yesterday. I was operating until 730 at night. So the polls had already closed. 
and I was beginning to contemplate some of the um, of the returns and uh, waiting for my patient to come out of the operating room and be sure that she was okay. It was a complicated cancer case, so I wasn't going to run off anytime soon. I always stick around like you know any good surgeon does. And I was looking at returns on my cell phone, and I noticed uh, uh, on the site that I was looking at that uh, there, there was a, a running tally of the popular vote. The numbers were scrolling up and updating every minute or so. And I thought, well, this is curious. Trump is leading Hillary Clinton by about a two-to-one margin. And again, numbers extremely small, like 75,000 votes to 25,000 votes. It was first opening. But I thought, this is very strange. I mean, I understand there's a lot of artifact here, and you can't draw any conclusions that soon. But I thought, well, this is uh, you know kind of curious. And then you know, my, my patient came out, and she was fine. So I got in the car and came home and joined my wife, Amy, and uh, my daughter, Margaret, in front of the television. And uh, I, I was um, I, I was cringing. I have to be honest with you. I mean, I thought, well, there's a point where you know hope has to die, uh, and I figured it would come when they started talking about Florida. And sure enough, they even were talking as uh, you know the, I was driving home in the car that you know some of the reports in Florida regarding voter turnout among certain minorities that would probably vote very much against Trump had very high turnout, so this was going to be bad, and some. Folks in the Trump camp were reportedly saying it was going to take a miracle, et cetera, et cetera. So I thought, okay, I'm going to live the dream until Florida comes in or North Carolina or Ohio or Pennsylvania. And uh, sure enough, as we're waiting for you know Trump to die over one of these states, it never happened. And at 9 p.m., Trump was still alive. And then I started looking at my own state of Georgia and looking at their numbers. And sure enough, uh, Trump was killing it in Georgia. I mean, and it was supposed to be close. Right. This was supposed to be a neck and neck purple state. Right. Everyone was claiming Georgia was a purple state now. So this was supposed to be neck and neck. And Trump was leading by five points, five percentage points. I thought, well, this is very strange. OK, well, I, I guess I get to indulge myself a little bit longer. And so, you know, it got to be 10 o'clock and I'm thinking, OK, any time now we're going to lose Pennsylvania, lose Ohio, lose, lose North Carolina, lose Florida. And doesn't matter what happens at that point. You know, everything's done. And uh, he didn't lose. He's still alive. 10 o'clock, he's still alive. 10.30, he's still alive. Then all of a sudden, we start winning these states, right? Then Florida comes in. Then Iowa comes in. And North Carolina. And then I, you all know the rest of the story. I don't have to drag out the details because you've heard it a million times on a million different uh, you know, news uh, uh, networks. And so, you know, here we are with, you know, three speeches, one from Hillary, one from Barack Obama, one from Donald Trump. And, uh, and, and that's, you know, the end of the first chapter of a very radical change in American political history. But I think it's unfortunate regarding these uh, speeches. Why is it that, that Hillary did not have the courage to face her supporters last night, right? When the race was done, and Pennsylvania was won somewhere around 2.30 in the morning. Donald Trump was giving his speech. I guess that's easy. It's the easy speech. The victory speech is the easy speech. But the concession speech should have been made by Hillary Clinton to her loyal supporters last night, right? Tuesday night, not the morning after. Uh, they sent you know John Podesta out there just to tell everybody to go home. You know, I, I, if I were one of the folks in the audience, I would be angry at Hillary Clinton because these are the people who devoted their blood, sweat, and tears. And maybe you like that candidate, maybe you don't. doesn't matter for this argument. But these folks gave blood, sweat, 
volunteers, money, devotion to their candidate. And as the candidate, I think you owe them. Even when it's a loss, I think she should have had the courage to go out there and face them. Just a minor deal. I mean, the next morning, yes, she comes out, she makes a speech, but that crowd's gone. And she makes it to people who were probably asleep by 2.30 in the morning. But anybody who's willing to stay up till 2.30 in the morning for me, I would hope at least, if you know, I ever faced a situation like that, that I would do the right thing and, uh, and be there for them. So – so here we have it, uh, you know, all sorts of potential. We're going to talk the rest of the show about what the implications might be for health care with this kind of victory. And then at the very end, we're going to cover what I was going to cover for the show anyway, which was the macro final rule. That'll be downstream in segments three and four. We got the rest of segment one, and we've got all of segment two to talk about what happens to health care as a result of what we had happen. And this is not going to be the usual stuff. Stick around because what you're going to hear in the next five minutes or so is not what you're expecting. It's not just a plain old dissertation on Obamacare and MACRA and all that kind of stuff. There's some other thoughts here I want to share in the next few minutes, and, uh, and please stick around for them. So, so what else did we see? Obviously, we have a result. We have the result that Donald Trump will be the next president of the United States starting January 20th when he's sworn in. Uh, that's a drop-dead surprise, of course. But the other the part of this that's the real story is how unexpected this was. Right? We were assuming Trump would lose, Hillary would win. Some people thought that these elections are rigged, they're cooked already, and that there's no way for an, an outsider or a non-incumbent or, let's say, a Republican, say it, um, can win because some people think they're rigged. Well – if they were rigged at all, it wasn't enough. So if there was rigging going on, it was incompetent rigging because it failed to produce the result that it was allegedly uh, supposed to uh, produce. But, but what, about, what about the data that goes into this, right? I mean this, this election more than any other, and of course it's always bigger and badder and better and brighter every year, had massive amounts of data, polling data mathematical models, all presented in beautiful media presentations, right? I watched it on Fox News last night. They must have spent a million dollars on this studio that they're going to use for one night to present an election. And all the data that you put up because it's pretty and it's on big screens and it's nice and neat and colorful, it looks so credible. And you think, of course, these people know what the election is going to be. How How could they possibly miss and yet they, they missed hugely. They missed big time. Uh, you know, my question is, will the Republicans in Congress take notice of this? Uh, do the Republicans in Congress understand that this just wasn't a diss of Hillary Clinton? Right? I mean, those of us who favor less government and health care and smaller government and more independence of doctors and patients certainly like the results of the election. And, and you know, there's no point in pretending otherwise. But I hope the Republicans in Congress understand that, that, that they got their noses rubbed in the dirt too. And they, they might miss that because they got to keep the House. They got to keep the Senate according to projections. Uh, and they may think that this was all sort of a, uh, uh, you know, a mandate for, uh, for business as usual for them. And uh, if, I hope they don't feel that way because that you know, would be a huge uh, mistake not to realize that they need to change their behavior as well. 
Uh, the exit poll shows some interesting things, and, and some of the polls from back in August, if you look, show some interesting things. Um, Americans were worried about health care. Um, some uh, later polls didn't show that. There was a Facebook poll that came out yesterday with the top five voter concerns, and health care was not on there. Um, you know, I don't believe that's true. And again, I think it's part of this whole spectrum of big data that we're getting. Right. Remember that term, big data, because we're going to circle back around to health information technology and talk about that. But right now, the big data was all about the election and how totally wrong all that big data was. There was a um, I was on on the way home uh, from work uh, yesterday. I was listening to uh, another talk show host, Eric Erickson, in the car. Uh, He's on WSB here in Atlanta in the evenings. You know, since I do this podcasting internet radio thing is, is, is part of what I do. I pay a lot more attention to what these folks have to say and, and how they say it and how they produce it. But um, I, I was unable to find the um, the primary source. So I'm just quoting this from what I heard on the radio in the car going home. Uh, uh, but the, there was m- r- r- discussion of a report uh, that talked about how uh, the the voter changes, right? Precincts that voted for Obama in 12 that flipped to Trump in 16, the odds of a flip were directly proportional to the increase in the Obamacare insurance premium in that area. So hopefully I said that right. Let me try and say it again. The greater your increase in Obamacare premium – the greater the risk that you would flip your vote from 2012 on to 16 from Democrat slash Barack Obama to Republican Donald Trump. We're at the end of the segment. You are listening to The Doctor's Lounge on America's Web Radio. Stay with us. The Docs for Patient Care Foundation is your way to join the fight and become a member of an organization created by doctors for patients dedicated to fighting for your health care freedom and preserving the doctor-patient relationship. Get a pen and paper. Write down docsforpatientcarefoundation.org. That's D-O-C-S, the number four, patientcarefoundation.org. Go to our site and please make a generous tax-deductible donation and join the fight today. Thank you. Obamacare is failing. We all know that, but you need to know why and what you can do to get us back on the right track. Visit us at ObamacareWatch.org. This is Grace Marie Turner of the Galen Institute. Join us at ObamacareWatch.org. Hello, I'm Dr. Mike Karuchak. Have you ever wondered what doctors talk about amongst themselves? If you do, join us on the Doctor's Lounge and hear the doctors' conversations amongst themselves. Join me and my co-host, Dr. Hal Schertz, every Thursday morning, 8 to 9 a.m. The Docs for Patient Care Foundation is your way to join the fight and become a member of an organization created by doctors for patients dedicated to fighting for your health care freedom and preserving the doctor-patient relationship. Get a pen and paper. Write down www.docsforpatientcarefoundation.org. That's www.docsforpatientcarefoundation.org. Go to our site and please make a generous tax-deductible donation and join the fight today. Thank you. You're listening to AmericasWebRadio.com, the pioneer and leader in chat radio. Thank you for listening. Welcome. 
Welcome back to the Doctor's Lounge on America's Web Radio. This is your host, Dr. Mike Karuchak. Thank you very much for sticking with us for a special edition of the Doctor's Lounge, uh, this special post-election edition of the Doctor's Lounge. And I guarantee you, in doctors' lounges all across the country, doctors are certainly talking about the results of this election, not only as American citizens because of all of the implications of, of this sea change in American politics, but also the direct implications of a Trump presidency on the status of American health care. The Doctor's Lounge is sponsored by the Doctor Patient Care Foundation. We believe in free market solutions to the problems facing America's health care system. And hopefully, based on the results of this election, there are a lot of other folks out there who may have a great interest in the same thing. We certainly hope so. Uh, we appreciate your support as listeners. We ask for your financial support as donors. Uh, please go to www.d4pcfoundation.org. That's D, the numeral four pcfoundation.org and give generously to keep this program going. This program survives uh, by the uncompensated time donations of yours truly, plus my co-host Hal Schertz, and the remainder of the Docs for Patient Care Foundation board, but the time is not enough by itself. It takes money to produce these programs, to distribute them on America's Web Radio. Uh, give a shout out here to David Moxley and and thank him once again for putting up with my crazy idiosyncrasies of uh, recording this show outside the studio and sending it to him uh, uh, rather than being there. <clears throat> it is, uh, it's a whole lot easier for me, but I appreciate David's hard work in making these uh, uh, live internet radio broadcasts and subsequent podcasts possible, uh, but we need your financial support to carry that on. So we were talking before the break about the implications to healthcare and otherwise, but we're, we're zeroing into the implications to our healthcare system regarding this Donald Trump victory and the circumstances surrounding the victory, namely the failure of all of the research, all of the polls, all of the models, all of the talking heads, all of the big data to even come close to predicting this election ahead of time and how far off they were. And, and what does that mean to medicine? What do, well, it actually means something, and I promise you I will connect the dots. I promised you in the first segment I was going to connect the dots from this election to healthcare and specifically to health information technology. So here we go. Um, I found an article that was published in the New York Times um, earlier today uh, by by one Jim Rutenberg uh, entitled "The News Media Yet Again Misreads America's Complex Pulse," and I'm just going to quote a few lines from this article. I thought it was excellent, and I, it's a good jumping-off point for me to bring this back around to health information technology. So here we go. All of the dazzling technology, the big data, and the sophisticated modeling that American newsrooms bring to the fundamentally human endeavor of presidential politics could not save American journalism from yet again being behind the story and behind the rest of the country. Uh, the misfire – I'm kind of hopping paragraphs here. The misfire on Tuesday night – I'm reading from his article. The misfire on Tuesday night was a lot about a lot more than a failure in polling. It was a failure to capture the boiling anger of a large population of the American electorate that feels left behind by selective recovery, betrayed by trade deals that they see as threats, disrespected by the establishment in Washington, Wall Street, and the mainstream media. All true. It means that not only was there an error of big data and an error in their data gathering and analysis machine, but that the fundamental error may have been human. 
and that you have to recognize that no matter how sophisticated your models are, how extensive your data is, how high your statistical N is, the number of samples, that there will be mistakes, that data will be misleading, and uh, that, that no matter how good you think you are, that you can screw things up. And doctors know this all the time. We know this instinctively. Surgeons say this to each other all the time. Uh, we, you know, we always say you know, to each other during surgery, never underestimate your ability to, we'll say, screw something up. The language is a little more colorful. But, uh, but, but you have to stay humble and you have to say, stay self-questioning, self-challenging. We'll continue to read here. Um, the Huffington Post had reported that Hillary's got this election. Open quote, she's got this. That more or less... Uh, you know, lined up with the New York Times upshot projection early Tuesday that Mrs. Clinton was an 84 percent favorite to win the presidency. But by mid-evening, by 10.30 p.m., that had completely flipped, and the New York Times upshot same projection had flipped from 84 percent in favor of Hillary to 93 percent in favor of Trump's. Uh, and, and all the other sites flipped and followed. And then here comes the great quote. This comes from Mike Murphy. He's quoted in this article. He was a Republican strategist on MSNBC, and he says, quote, my crystal ball has been shattered into atoms, and that tonight data died. And I think that's probably the most prescient quote, the, 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 the most important quote of the whole article. Uh, here's more quotes. Politics, and this is important too, Politics, and you can say the same thing about medicine. So here's the hook. Here's the connection to, to health information technology. Politics and medicine is not just about numbers. Data can't always capture the human condition that is the blood of American politics. Now you can say the same thing about medicine. Data does not capture the human condition that sick people and well people experience. And so how is it that we have this faith in big data in medicine. I mean, we don't, doctors don't, but we have an entire health IT community that is pushing big data on us with all sorts of promises and saying, we're going to take all your claims data, all your clinical data, you know, every single piece of data you can think of, and we're going to dump it into a giant IBM Watson supercomputer, and the darn thing's going to spit out answers to questions that you didn't – didn't try again – spit out answers to questions that you didn't even know to ask. And that somehow this is going to be good for you and good for your patients. Well, here's the wake-up call to the health IT community, to the, to the, to the devotees of big data, to the disciples of big data – to the worshipers of big data, and there are plenty, that guess what? Big data can screw up. And when big data screws up, it screws up big. So if big data can't even predict, can't even come close to predicting the results of a presidential election, how can I as a doctor trust big data to tell me what the right treatment is for my patient? without some sort of intuitive sniff test, right? Doctors use data, but, but doctors feel as well as think. And that is so important to the proper practice of medicine. Right? Back when I was in medical school, 
And I went to Duke Medical School, and the head of the surgery program, in fact, darn near the head of the whole medical school, was a very famous, very talented, very devoted surgeon named David Sabiston. And David Sabiston, if you're a surgeon, you know that name. Uh, his name is on the textbook of surgery. It's called Sabiston Textbook of Surgery, and every single doctor has that book in their library. It might not be a current edition, but you're going to have that book in your library. Everybody knows what it is, and everybody knows who Saviston was and the importance of his contributions. His work led to the ability of us to do heart bypasses. Very devoted guy. And he was very interested in the medical students. And he would come and give a lecture to the medical students on the surgery rotation every week. And, and he had these aphorisms. He had these things that he would say time and time again. And one of those things was that unless you can put a number on something, you can't say you understand it. And I would say that he was half right. The problem with that saying, and I was never comfortable with it when I was a medical student, is that how do you know you're putting the right number on something? Right? That saying, that aphorism, that belief, that credo drives one to put numbers on things just to put the number on. And if you put the wrong number on something, you don't understand it more. You understand it less. And that's a problem. So how is it that we reconcile what's going on here? How is it that we figure out how it is that, that we handle big data? Well, I think we just have to understand and we have to be very adamant to the health IT community that there must be exercised some degree of caution when we look at numbers. And it gets back to intuition. It gets back to doctor-patient relationship. It gets back to the fact that when we are looking at a patient and we are evaluating them that there's a proper place for numbers and there's a place where the numbers don't belong. And don't get me wrong. We're not against numbers. We're not against data. I mean, back in David Sabiston's day, and I think I remember this story correctly. It's been 30 years, but I, I believe he used to tell the story of when he was in training with another famous surgeon named Alfred Blaylock that the hospital they worked in had the labs on one wing and the wards for the patients on the other. Now, by labs, I mean like the research labs, that kind of thing. And I believe they built the building that way to say that you were constantly moving back and forth between the lab and the patient. And that's how you maintained that intellectual connection, that spiritual connection between the work you did in the laboratory and the work you did at the bedside. The difference between how that worked 50 years ago and how medicine's trying to get trying to work now or what, what health IT is trying to do to medicine now is to take out the human element right if there was a wing with the lab and the wing with the wards the courier between those two the vessel if you will was a human being it was a flesh and blood body and soul human being that brought that data from the lab back to the patient but it got processed through gray matter it got processed through heart and soul, and that's the piece that health IT is missing. And if there's anything that this election teaches us about information technology and big data, it's that you can't have what 
the uh, what the Apollo astronauts and the Mercury astronauts uh, and the Gemini astronauts described years ago as a closed loop data system. Right? What's closed loop data system? Closed loop means computer makes all the decisions. There is no human input. Right? In the old rocket ships of the 1960s and 1970s, that concept meant the computer flew the ship and the astronaut was just a passenger. Right? Appropriately, the astronauts found that to be unacceptable. One, because you don't trust a computer with your life that way. And so the astronauts insisted back in the early 60s when these spaceships were designed, they were going to be open-loop technology. Right? Open-loop technology says the computer calculates how to fly the ship and then presents that data to the astronaut as a suggestion. And then the astronaut flies the ship. And we're missing that human element in the model of big data healthcare that is being foisted on us now. So how's that for a connection between a failed election prediction and health information technology? I don't know. Half decent, you could do worse. We're at the end of the second segment. You have been listening to The Doctor's Lounge on America's Web Radio. Stay with us. The Docs for Patient Care Foundation is your way to join the fight and become a member of an organization created by doctors for patients dedicated to fighting for your health care freedom and preserving the doctor-patient relationship. Get a pen and paper. Write down docsforpatientcarefoundation.org. That's D-O-C-S, the number four, patientcarefoundation.org. Go to our site and please make a generous tax-deductible donation and join the fight today. Thank you. Did you miss a show that you really wanted to hear? All of our programs are available for download on AmericasWebRadio.com and on iTunes. You can listen to your favorite programs on AmericasWebRadio.com anytime you like. The Docs for Patient Care Foundation is your way to join the fight and become a member of an organization created by doctors for patients dedicated to fighting for your health care freedom and preserving the doctor-patient relationship. Get a pen and paper. Write down www.docsforpatientcarefoundation.org. That's www.docsforpatientcarefoundation.org. Go to our site and please make a generous tax-deductible donation and join the fight today. Thank you. You're listening to AmericasWebRadio.com, the pioneer and leader in chat radio. Thank you for listening. I want to particularly congratulate President-elect Trump. I think we all agree this is a stunning election and clearly an indication the American people would like to try something new. And I know the speaker shares my view that we would like to see the country go in a different direction and intend to work with him uh, to change courses, uh, to change the course uh, for America. Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell making comments about the unexpected drop-dead surprise election of Donald Trump over Hillary Clinton to be the next President of the United States, no question, an earth-shattering event. So we are just devoting most of our Doctor's Lounge show today to it. Welcome back again to the Doctor's Lounge, segment three. Uh, this is your host, Dr. Mike Karuchak. Thanks very much for spending time with us on this special edition, post-election edition of the Doctor's Lounge. And so we continue our conversation. At the end of the last segment, we had been talking about the lessons to be learned from this election regarding big data. And what did we learn? Well, we learned that big data can be fancy. 
It can be colorful. It can be slick. And it can also be totally, totally wrong. So if a big data system can miscall a American presidential election, my thesis is that big data can also miscall what the right treatment is for prostate cancer. It can miscall the right antibiotic to treat middle ear infections. And in doing so, can mistreat millions of people with conceivably a single line error in somebody's software code somewhere. And I think that's one of the biggest lessons that we need to take home from a health IT standpoint is how fallible big data is and how badly it can mislead us if, if, if something is done wrong. Just because the data look good doesn't mean that they smell good and doesn't mean that they look right and that, that, that they're appropriate to be forced upon us for the treatment of patients. So that was kind of where we left things. I think we're going to move on a little bit now and uh, and talk about some of the nitty-gritty, some of the talking points, some of the uh, things that Donald Trump has pledged to do uh, with uh, with our healthcare system uh, after he takes office January 20th. So um, Majority Leader McConnell had some other comments, so let's go ahead and play those. Every single Republican thought Obamacare was a mistake. It's a pretty high item on our agenda, as you know. And um, I would be shocked if we didn't uh, move forward to keep our commitment to the American people. Uh, It was the single worst piece of legislation among many bad pieces of legislation uh, passed in the first two years of the Obama presidency. The sooner we can go in a different direction, the better. So there you go. You know, it looks like everybody's locked and loaded. Everybody's ready to go to do something with Obamacare. The question is what? So – do a little research. Let's see what uh, what Donald Trump has had to say uh, in the past about this. Uh, and I think one thing we can say is it's it's um, it's distressingly vague beyond a couple of rudimentary things. I mean, he's pledged to to eliminate Obamacare in some form or fashion. He says he's going to repeal it in the first hundred days of office. Uh, we're going to look at that in a little more detail. But I'm going to play you one more clip here, uh, just to kind of drive home the point uh, that that Donald's plan is not as developed, I think, as it needs to be, which is reasonable for where we are, but he's got some work to do and and not a whole lot of time to do it. So here's from the third debate uh, when a town hall member asked a question. You also said you want to make coverage accessible for people with pre-existing conditions. How do you force insurance companies to do that if you're no longer mandating that everyone get insurance? You're going to have plans. What what does that mean? Well, I'll tell you what it means. You're going to have plans that are so good because we're going to have so much competition in the insurance industry once we break out once we break out the lines and allow the competition to come. Are you, Obama, are you going to have a mandate that Americans Anderson, have to have health insurance? Me. President Obama, by keeping those lines, the boundary lines around each state, and it was almost gone until just very toward the end of the passage of Obamacare, which, by the way, was a fraud. You know that. Because Jonathan Gruber, the architect of Obamacare, was said, he said it was a great lie. It was a big lie. President Obama said, you keep your doctor, you keep your plan. The whole thing was a fraud, and it doesn't work. But when we get rid of those lines, you have competition, and we will be able to keep pre-existing. We'll also be able to help people that can't get, don't have money, because we are going to have people protected. And Republicans feel this way, believe it or not, and strongly this way. We're going to block grant into the states. We're going to block grant into Medicaid, into the states, so that we will be able to take care of people without the necessary funds to take care of themselves. Thank you, Mr. Trump. Okay, so 
We got a few things out of that, right? Uh, you know, Obamacare is definitely going by the wayside for sure. They talked about the state line thing, talked about a few other things. But let's just go through the nitty-gritty points. Uh, there's actually a seven-point plan on uh, Donald Trump's website. We're going to go through the seven points, and then we're going to go through maybe some of the things that uh, that are missing um, that, uh, in, in my opinion, really need to be there. So, okay, so lead off number one. Okay, repeal Obamacare. Okay, so that's fine. So I, I guess what that means, uh, and I, I don't know this for sure, but if you take the statement just at face value, they're going to come up with a one-page bill that says everything in the Affordable Care Act is null and void, and we're going to pass that through both houses and have uh, Donald Trump sign it, and uh, and and then everything in the Obama uh, in the uh, in Obamacare uh, instantly ceases to exist. Well, that's just not practical. That is not practical. He set himself up, I think, to try to do something in the first hundred days. The bottom line is, I don't, I don't know that it's practical to do that fast unless he really gets to work quickly. And I don't know that there's any signs at this early stage that he's prepared to do that. But it, my opinion is that, that you can't repeal Obamacare. Obamacare is like a time bomb um, that's wired to something, and you know you've got to cut the three wires in the right order to dismantle the bomb. If you don't cut the wires, the timer counts down to zero and the bomb goes off. If you cut the wires in the wrong order, the thing blows up right in front of you. Only if you cut the wires in the right order, meaning – Outside the metaphor, dismantle Obamacare in the proper sequence, simultaneously replacing it with something else so that folks don't get lost in the cracks. Uh, you know, I don't think that's going to work. Um, you know, John Goodman gives a good um, sort of description. It says, you know, we started off at point A pre-Obamacare. What you know, Obamacare has moved us to point B, but the next place to go isn't back to point A; it's to point C which isn't our starting point but isn't our Obamacare endpoint either. It's someplace completely different, and I think that's the, the image that we need to keep in our head as we think about you know, this newly acquired opportunity to actually do something about the Affordable Care Act uh, before it raises premiums till no one can afford them and raises deductibles till no one can afford them and, and really – uh, you know, it uses this illusion that just because 20 million people are carrying a card in their hand that they actually have access to care. And, and, you know, I think that's probably one of the major problems. So it would be satisfying. It would be fun to write a single page in your face, Barack Obama, repeal the Affordable Care Act. But it's just not practical. And, and, and this is not about us and it's not about Congress. It's about, you know, the patients in this country that need to have better care than they're getting now. And we need to try to make some kind of transition without causing the whole thing to, uh, to fall apart. So that's point number one, repeal Obamacare. Um, good in concept, gotta be more sophisticated in execution. So the second thing, the second of his suggestions is to, uh, you know, be able to sell insurance across state lines. This one's not as obvious unless you're into healthcare policy, but every state has its own, uh, you know, group of healthcare insurers and they don't cross straight lines. So, you know, we have Blue Cross Blue Shield of Georgia. Next to us is Blue Cross Blue Shield of Alabama, uh, you know, and so there's 50 Blue Cross Blue Shield companies, one for every state. Uh, and so th in some cases, this may be limiting competition, and this is actually a complicated argument. Uh, you know, I wish Dick Armstrong was here because he can do this much better than I can. But there are some problems with this concept of just knocking the state lines down, uh, one of which is is that, uh, you know, as, as one of the giants in our ENT spe specialty, KJ Lee, says all, all health care is local. Uh, 
All healthcare is local. What does that mean? Well, your doctor's local, your hospital is local. Uh, and so all of these sort of, you know, bricks and mortar or flesh and blood institutions, it, it's hard to globalize them across state lines because if you create a panel of docs that have agreed to the payment schedule in a single market and some, and you try to sell that plan in another market where you don't have doctors on the panel, how does that work? I mean, do you just expand the panel? I don't know that anybody's figured out the rules of engagement there, but I think that, um, you know, I don't know how you do that in a way that just doesn't, you know, become state by state insurance by another name. I don't know. Um, like I said, I wish Dr. Armstrong were here. He could explain this a whole lot better than I do. But the whole idea of just making the state lines go away for healthcare plan sales and exchange, um, you know, is is problematic. So what's the next one? Uh, allow premium deductions uh, on your taxes, uh, you know, meaning if you pay $1,000 in health insurance premiums, you get to deduct that from your taxable income. Well, that's a good idea. That's a good start. I've read some comments from some other people that have some legitimate criticisms. One of those is uh, that if you make it a premium, if you make it a deduction rather than a tax credit, then you favor wealthy people because they're paying more in taxes to start with. And so somebody who's middle class or lower middle class and is paying that money and barely making it, they're not paying enough taxes in the first place. Uh, if you make it a deduction from taxable income, it's not going to make any difference to them. If you make it a tax credit and you make it a refundable tax credit, then two things happen. One is you flatten the benefit out across high and low income folks, which I think is good. And the, and the second is that you, you know, the, the folks at the lower end are getting enough of a break to actually make it practical to buy health care insurance. So, yeah, you know, it's another one of those good starts. You know, you got to follow through and you got to be able to uh, execute it. But the purpose of that point is clearly to decouple health insurance from employers. And I think that's good. I think that's part of our problem is that, uh, you know, number one, we got a third party payer system in the first place. And the second is that those in benefit plans in the vast majority of cases are tied to your employer. And that creates all sort of perverse, you know, incentives uh, that, that we've just kind of talked about. So, you know, that's the stuff that I'm not terribly thrilled with, but it's it's not bad. Next number, item number four, health savings accounts. It says everyone should be able to have a health savings account. Well, I, I don't know exactly what the laws are now, but I know that our family has a health savings account and lots of other people I know have health savings accounts, and I think most plans offer an HSA option. Maybe I'm wrong. Certainly laws could be improved to support health savings accounts. I mean, I could see, you know, doing the same thing we talked about with, uh, with, with premium deductions and say that, you know, you can contribute to your HSA maybe as a tax credit for the first thousand of true. So everybody does that, doesn't cost you a cent. And then maybe have it be a tax uh, deduction beyond that, maybe put some means testing on it, something like that. But I think we need more sophisticated laws to allow HSAs to expand. One thing that would be great to be able to do is to use your HSA money to pay your direct primary care provider their monthly fee. So in effect, your monthly fee becomes pre-tax. Be a very helpful thing, a couple $300 a year per person to a family of four, maybe over a 1000 if you do the math. So um, you know, like that idea. It's not my idea. Got that doing internet research, but, uh, but I definitely like it. Number five is uh, talking about uh, price transparency. Um, that's, uh, we'll get into that into the next uh, segment. We're kind of running out of time right here, and we'll finish it up shortly. You are listening to The Doctor's Lounge on America's Web Radio. 
The Docs for Patient Care Foundation is your way to join the fight and become a member of an organization created by doctors for patients dedicated to fighting for your health care freedom and preserving the doctor-patient relationship. Get a pen and paper. Write down docsforpatientcarefoundation.org. That's D-O-C-S, the number four, patientcarefoundation.org. Go to our site and please make a generous tax-deductible donation and join the fight today. Thank you. Did you miss a show that you really wanted to hear? All of our programs are available for download on AmericasWebRadio.com and on iTunes. You can listen to your favorite programs on AmericasWebRadio.com anytime you like. This is Skip Coriel, host of the Home Defense Show on America's Web Radio. Join me every week for a full hour of all the best and latest information on how you can get the skills and equipment you need to protect the ones that you love. Obamacare is failing. We all know that, but you need to know why and what you can do to get us back on the right track. Visit us at ObamacareWatch.org. This is Grace Marie Turner of the Galen Institute. Join us at ObamacareWatch.org. The Docs for Patient Care Foundation is your way to join the fight and become a member of an organization created by doctors for patients dedicated to fighting for your health care freedom and preserving the doctor-patient relationship. Get a pen and paper. Write down www.docsforpatientcarefoundation.org. That's www.docsforpatientcarefoundation.org. Go to our site and please make a generous tax-deductible donation and join the fight today. Thank you. You're listening to AmericasWebRadio.com, the pioneer and leader in chat radio. Thank you for listening. Welcome back to the Doctor's Lounge. For those of you loyal listeners making it all the way to Segment Thor, thank you for sticking with us. Uh, you are listening to the Doctor's Lounge on America's Web Radio. This is your host, Dr. Mike Karuchak. I alternate weeks with my inimitable co-host, Dr. Hal Schurz. Uh, together we bring you the very best in health policy, internet chat radio and podcast chat radio. Thank you very much for your support. Uh, onward we go into segment four. So we're going to finish up a few things here. We were talking about the multiple points of Obama's uh, – I'm sorry, Obama's. Listen to me. See, I'm, I, I can't even get it out of my head yet. So the multiple points of Donald Trump's president-elect Donald Trump, not just any Donald Trump, but now president-elect Donald Trump. We're talking about his proposals to modify our health care system to make things better. So we talked about these. Number one, repeal Obamacare. Talked about that. Uh, it needs to be more sophisticated than that. I think you dismantle Obamacare like a time bomb, not just a one-page repeal. Number two, eliminate state lines. Um, I'm not smart enough to have a discussion about that, but I know there are some issues, not the least of which has to do with local networks. Number three, um, to uh, allow premiums, the cost of your insurance premium to be deducted from your income tax uh, probably should be a tax credit rather than a tax deduction or some sort of means-tested mix of the two. Number four, health savings accounts. Uh, yes, yes, and yes. Uh, need some better laws to allow health savings account money to be spent on your direct primary care doctor uh, or maybe make those tax credits at, at the lower income folks. Um, and that brings us to number five, price transparency. So lots of verbiage. Uh, from Trump about, you know, providers need to, you know, show their prices, doctors, hospitals, uh, so people can price shop. Good idea, except that in a third party payment system, it doesn't matter. 
because you're not paying a cash price for the services. The price has already been negotiated by your insurance company, and you know some of that's getting paid by your insurance company most of the time if you're talking about more expensive procedures. Uh, so, you know, price transparency as a standalone concept is not strong. Price transparency as part of a bigger concept of reducing the role of third-party payers so that you're actually paying your own money as a patient, and therefore you are driven to price shop and find the lowest price and assess that against the quality of what you're getting, just like we do with cars and TVs and everything else. That's not a bad idea, but you've got to follow through. Next number, number six, block grant uh, for Medicaid. Okay, the idea is that the states know more about how to spend the money on their indigent populations or or less – I shouldn't say indigent, too strong a word, you know, less affluent populations. Uh, Fine. Um, You know, again, I'm not smart enough to know where the problems are with that, so I'm going to kind of coast over that one. But he does want to block grant Medicaid money. And number seven – Last but not least is something I have a bit of issue with, and it gets back to this price transparency competition thing. I like that as a concept, but he's talking about you know removing barriers to entry uh, so that um, you know more drugs can enter the market and we can get more competition. That's a good idea. It does mean you got to tinker pretty heavily with the FDA, uh, and clearly something needs to be done there. And again, we reviewed this a couple of weeks ago when we talked about the EpiPen scandal and myelin pharmaceuticals and the fact that these EpiPens cost six hundred bucks for a pair of pens. They only last about a year before they expire, and, and the government has a requirement that schools buy them. So, you know, all of these things conspire to drive drug prices up. And so, I don't know that it's as simple as just removing barriers to entry. Uh, we also know that uh, many times drug prices are driven up by rebates. Believe it or not, rebates that go from the drug manufacturers back to the pharmacy benefit manager or the sort of the insurance for your drugs, if you will. And so there's all sorts of kickbacks and rebates and money flying around in all directions. And until you clean up that swamp, until you drain that swamp, I'm not sure how much a simple barrier to entry model is going to improve things. Um, So uh, there you have it in terms of what's in Trump's policy, what's not in Trump's policy? What's missing from Donald Trump's policy? Well, probably the biggest one, and it gets back to what I was talking about before, is you know if you just dismantle or destroy Obamacare with a one-page bill that says the ACA is null and void, what do you do with the 20 million people that actually have insurance through the Obamacare exchanges that are actually living off of subsidies for their insurance premiums because they could never afford it on its own? If all that stuff vanishes into thin air with the stroke of his pen, what are these folks going to do? And so it's a concrete version of the conceptual question I was asking before, which is that you know until you have something to replace Obamacare with, you can't just pass that one-page repeal ACA bill. Satisfying though it may be to uh, you know hand-deliver a copy of that to Obama's place in Chicago or wherever and you know have the media cover that, that would be fun – but ultimately not that helpful and perhaps harmful because, again, this isn't about us sticking it to Obama. I think we got to get past that. Uh, I think this is about uh, this is about patience and, and this is about the quality of the system and, you know, we need to keep our eyes on the prize here. So what else are you going to do? Well, 
maybe private exchanges. Would that help? I don't know. Uh, and then, you know, what are we going to do with direct primary care? I think we need to have something in the uh, uh, ACA replacement that talks about direct primary care. We talked about using health savings accounts money to pay for that. We could use Medicare money to pay for that. Uh, you know, we could do some neat stuff with direct primary care with the correct legislative support. Uh, so I think that's a big one that needs to be in there. Uh, and then last but not least is, uh, you know, the, the, the biggest piece of legislation that affects doctors, and it's not Obamacare, it's MACRA. I think MACRA, having studied this for a few months, I think MACRA, this, this bill that changes how doctors will be paid under Medicare and Medicaid, uh, has a far more profound reach on how we live our lives as physicians than even the Affordable Care Act does. And, you know, we just had the final rule for that come out, you know, realize that CMS is very limited in what it can do going from the proposed rule to the final rule because, number one, you have a piece of legislation called MACRA that imposes a floor on how much you can soften the bill or make it easier. And, of course, you know, the White House has the Office of Management and Budget that's going to go over this. And if they try to make changes that, you know, are going to affect Obama's legacy, like a one-year delay, like uh, one of those things that, you know, we kind of entertained but never came around to pass, um, you know, there's not a lot of wiggle room for Andy Slavitt's team to to change that bill. That's just the way it is. I'm not saying they're completely victimless in the process or not culpable at all, but they certainly have limitations. So what are we going to do about MACRA now with a Republican White House and two Republican houses of Congress? Uh, you know, I think we can attack MACRA as well. And, and I, and I have to disagree with my IT colleague, John Lynn, who, um, recently, uh, you know, obviously in the last day or so wrote an article in one of his healthcare scene blogs talking about, uh, you know, what, what, Listen to me. I'm still doing it. What Trump can do, not Obama, what Trump can do with Obamacare versus Macra, and he thinks Macra is going to fly below the radar and there's not going to be enough bandwidth to attack both bills at the same time. I hope he's wrong. I think he's wrong, but I really hope he's wrong. Um, but there's no question he makes a valid point that if we're going to move on Macra, it's going to take more than public opinion like Obamacare has because nobody knows what Macra is. Doctors don't even know what Macra is. I could carp on five hours a day behind this microphone and doctors still wouldn't know in the rank and file what this is because, again, we talked about this. Doctors are pleasers. They are, our tendency is to go to work, take care of patients, come home, and trust that society is going to take care of us in spite of the fact that society has proven over and over again how wrong – it is about all of that stuff. So uh, we have got about, what, four minutes left. So I, I guess the best I can do for you right now, I was going to replay a lecture that I gave uh, at the uh, Southeastern Users Group for the electronic medical records that we use, which is GE's product. Um, I'm not sure how much momentum we're going to get in four minutes of airtime. So I think the best I can do, I'll try to start at least a little bit of a rudimentary review of what the macro final rule is. Okay, so a little introductory remark. What's macro? We talked about this. Uh, you know, macro was the bill that was passed in April of 2015 to get rid of the sustainable growth rate 
and consolidate all these other programs, the PQRS quality program, the meaningful use program, the resource use program, uh, and and ball all these up into one body of legislation so that it's easier to take care of and track. Uh, You know, they promised us a few, you know, reductions in total reporting and a few other little things. Uh, And, you know, the proposed rule came out in the spring. There was a two-month commentary period. We submitted comments. The final rule came out. To their credit, it came out in mid-October, which gave us two and a half months to comply with a 2,000-page law as opposed to two weeks to comply with a 2,000-page law. So, so, so what did they give us? Uh, you know, what did they concede? What did they change? And the short answer to the question is not very much. Uh, you know, the big headline here is that there is now, in effect, a patch uh, in the vernacular of, of information technology, there's a modification of the rules for 2017 that allow you to do less and report less and at least avoid the 4% penalty in 2019. So that's not bad. So we can go through those options. There's actually beyond full regular participation, there's three options. And these were beautifully reviewed by um, Mark Siegel from uh, GE Health Systems. Uh, that, uh, And I've had him as a guest on the show a few months ago. I hope to have him again. But um, I had the privilege of sharing a keynote address slot with him. And he went through all the nitty-gritty about MACRA, and I gave my – my rant that all of you, the listeners of this program, are familiar with or at least heard before, uh, talking about the fact that all of this macro stuff is pointless because it's very difficult to measure quality. You're not doing that. All you're doing is adding to the cost of the system. But fine, be that as it may, we're going to go through these things. So option one is probably the highest level of participation short of full participation. But what they're saying is basically you've, you participate in all parts of macro, right? There's four parts. There's advancing care information. That's the old meaningful use stuff. There's the quality measures, which is the old PQRS stuff. There's the resource use stuff, which doctors have never seen before. And then there are these advanced care initiatives, which is things like being available at off hours and doing your maintenance of certification and doing patient uh, you know, satisfaction surveys and all that kind of stuff. So those are the four parts, uh, and they all have a different weight to them. Um, but uh, what they've decided is that you can get at least a little bit of bonus, right? You can avoid the penalty, get at least a little bit of bonus if you do full participation, uh, but for a 90-day period rather than a 12-month period. Uh, and you don't have to do the same 90-day period for every single thing that you report. So that's not too bad. Um, we're running out of time here. We're coming up on uh, 45 seconds to the end of the hour. Um, option two is uh, report for greater than 90 days but less than a year, uh, but don't report the full battery of quality measures. All you have to do is one quality measure, one clinical practice improvement measure, and one of the required uh, you know, electronic medical record measures. And then the third option is where you report for 90 days, but you report one quality measure, one – uh, clinical practice improvement measure and the entire battery of uh, advancing care information slash meaningful use things. So you've got three ways to participate in addition to um, you know full participation. That's a reasonable concession and a reasonable start. Uh, maybe two weeks from now we'll do this in a little bit more detail, but we've reached the end of the hour. You have been listening to The Doctor's Lounge on America's Web Radio. See you with uh, Dr. Hal next week. You're listening to AmericasWebRadio.com the pioneer and leader in chat radio. Thank you for listening.